begin in a word of, with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts which you give us, especially the gift of marriage through which you bless your children. We pray that you would uh, bless this study tonight, that we may learn better from your word, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and what he says about biblical marriage. And we pray that you would uh, open the minds and, and hearts of all here and all who watch and listen to this, that they would uh, be blessed by that word. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, we are cont- continuing this section, uh, which is the longest section within the, the the chapter, on what God intends for marriage. And I, I've just kind of been listing out things for myself, which I think um, are, which I'm getting from the book, but also from other th- other resources and um, of what what different things God intends for marriage. Uh, we've talked about blessing and and lifelong monogamy. Uh, that the, one of the first things that God intends for marriage is to bless His children, to bless His church, to bless society, and uh, that is all comes from the fact that marriage is a very good thing in creation, uh, instituted as a a divine uh, gift even before the fall into sin, and then uh, lifelong monogamy, um, and really sh- the broader title there would also be lifelong monogamy between between one man and one woman. Um, which goes back to the definition of marriage as well, that uh, God intends this not to be a, a light thing um, that can be you know, thrown away or changed or um, done away with, but that this is a, a divine contract or a covenant, if you will, uh, between just these two, two people, one man and one woman. And that obviously takes away a lot of other options that a lot of people want in our society today, but uh, that over and over again throughout history, throughout all cultures, uh, you can basically see that this is what works, right? Lifelong monogamy, and it's obviously what Jesus teaches, Matthew 19, um, and throughout the the scriptures. So God intends uh, a certain kind of marriage, right? Not just... um, whatever we want marriage to be on whatever whim we're in, but but a certain kind of marriage. And then um, order and duty is where we left off last time. So we'll pick up that and then try and get to these other things as well. Order and duty is probably the the longest section within the section here uh, because it's perhaps the most uh, divisive or most um, ignored in... In our society, uh, we, we, you know, a lot of the marriage problems or marriage issues that have come up recently in, say, the last 10, 20 years, uh, homosexual marriage, uh, trans, transgender marriage, polyamorous marriage, all of that is relatively new, um, last 10, 20 years, like I've said, but feminism, which takes away the order and what the duties are for the man and the woman in marriage. Feminism has uh, really been instantiated in our culture since, I would actually say since after World War One, since the 19, the really like the roaring 20s. Um, and there was a little break in there in the 50s after the, the war with the baby boom, but then uh, in the 60s and 70s you get the second wave of the sexual, sexual revolution, second wave feminism, and um, things really take off. And that's really been 
very well instantiated in our culture. Um, and so order and duty is a big thing we have to deal with. Now, last, last time we read 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5, and we're going to pick back up our discussion of those two uh, things. So, so first of all, the main thing we talked about is that having order does not define someone's worth or value, right? So there's tons of orders that God gives in society. Uh, parents are meant to be in charge of their children, right? To be to be heads over their children. You can't have children run a ho- run a household, or else dinner would be marshmallows and chocolate chip cookies every night, right? You can't have you can't have soldiers uh, do whatever they want, otherwise the soldiers would never, uh, you know, choose to to do any of the hard exercises or or drills that they need to do to be ready for battle, right? You have to have commanders that tell the soldiers what to do. You can't have employees. Uh, be the bosses uh, in a workplace when otherwise there there would never be any work done because what person's going to work if they can get paid for not doing anything, right? That's why you have to have bosses to tell people what to do. There's order in society. Um, that's simply how God has, has made the world, to have heads and to have followers, to have heads and have people who submit to them. But within a family, within a marriage... Order also has to exist. And the divine order that God establishes that the husband would be the, the head of the household and the wife would submit to him. Um, and this, we even saw in 1 Corinthians 11, this even exists within the Trinity, that uh, the son submits to the father's will, right? The, the son is to the father as, and the, um, the Christ is to the father and the man is to Christ and the, the, the wife is to the man, right? The woman is to the man. And so this order of creation that exists, these orders of creation that exist uh, in, in creation and even, even in God himself are uh, not at all bad, right? We do, in, in our theology, our Trinitarian theology, we don't say that Christ is somehow less valuable than the Father, right? They're both, they're both God. They're both the one true God. Um, how, they're, they're equal in majesty and glory. How, how could we say otherwise? Right. So same with husband and wife, just because there is an order that must be followed doesn't mean that they are that women are somehow less valuable or not not worth as much uh, to society or to um, the marriage or to the church or to God, God himself. So uh, that's kind of the first thing we talked about. And um, that and the, the other point I made about that is that that distinction that order does not equal value or worth, that's where basically every problem with marriage goes wrong. So um, it leads to all these, these other, other problems. That's the, between whether it's feminism whether it's, or whether it's transgenderism, the fundamental lie is this egalitarianism, that somehow we all have to be interchangeable and on, the, on an equal playing field. Right, and that every everything every any person says, um, you can't tell them they're they're wrong, right? So if a child says, you know, even though God made me a boy, I want to be a girl, 
then if you don't have order, like one, if you don't have parents to say, no, that's silly, that's not how God made you, um, and then they just forget about it the next day because they're kids, right? Uh, and then, but two, if we actually recognize that there's a difference between boys and girls, right? That people are not just interchangeable, that there is uh, order and difference built within creation that is good, right? And it's funny, like, that that the world likes to talk about diversity so much, uh, that diver- as diversity as this virtue, and yet the world actually hates diversity, right? The world wants to make everybody the same. And if, if you want different people of equal value and worth, then you need order. You need distinctions, right? You need to have... have uh, be, be honest about what how people are different from one another, right? Uh, how men are different than women, how boys are different from girls, how um, bosses are different than employees, how children are different than adults, right? Uh, you, you have to have order. Okay, so uh, that, that's in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11. Um, the one thing I wanted to point out in 1 Corinthians 11, which is really interesting, is... Uh, just going off of what we were just saying there is, uh, let's see, first, verse 7 and, and 8, and this word glory. So again, the, the context here is head coverings, and I'm not talking about head coverings specifically. If you want to know about head coverings, um, obviously I think most of you know Rebecca wears a head covering in church, so uh, that... We can talk about that later if you want. But the more important thing here is what, what Paul is saying the head coverings confess, which is uh, this idea about glory and the difference between man and woman. So verse, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, For a man ought not to wear a head covering because he is the image and glory of God. But, how, hey, how many of y'all men, your parents made you take off your hats and caps when you prayed? when you were kids yeah or take them take them off inside right all right yeah so our culture did used to have some of this um my mother would never enter a church without a hat on her without a hat yeah it wasn't a big fancy yeah just a little hat yeah yeah the 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 hat thing is interesting uh with men too because i see that all the time now that that men wear their hats on, on on inside and even when they, you know, it doesn't really happen here, but I've seen in other churches men will, like, wear baseball hats and, you know, more like casual churches or whatever. Um, and uh, my, my, brother, my brother wears hats a lot, and I, I don't really wear hats much, but um, he wears hats a lot. But I, I, my parents were always very strict that if he could wear them inside, I think, but if we were praying, he had to take that thing off. Like if we were, or if we were eating, like if we were at a table together, right? So anyway, that just struck me as I was reading that, right? I was just reading that this second that I thought of that. Anyway, all right. For a man ought not to wear a head covering because he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is man's glory. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. And man was not created for the woman, but woman for man. Okay, so it's easy again to read this and to see this, like, uh, you know, to think of this as a value judgment where you have 
uh, God, and then you have uh, man, who's the image and glory of God, and then you have a woman who's the glory of man, and to think, oh, like this is like a value, so like women is, woman is like the least valuable, and God's like the most valuable, and man's somewhere in, in the middle. And I think that's actually the, the wrong way to read that. So the term glory, uh, glory is the shining forth of God's holiness, right? And it's, it's, glory, it's holiness being exemplified and magnified. And so instead of thinking of this as kind of this like value judgment where things are getting like worse, this is actually something where God, the, the goodness that comes from God is being radiated out, right? And so if man is God's glory and woman is the glory of man, then woman is the, the, the glory of the glory. And, and this is a, I think Paul is uh, recognizing a Hebrew idiom here, which is, uh, this is how, in, so, you know, in English, if we say, so what we have as uh, comparatives and superlatives, so, um, you know, like good, better, best, right? So we do like three different words. Well, in Hebrew, what they'll do is they'll say um, this of, of it. So they'll say like the same thing of the same thing. So the holy of holies, right? That means it's the holiest place. Um, and, or the Lord of lords, right? Meaning that Yahweh is the true God, the most God that there is, right? So Lord of lords, holy of holies. This is the glory of the glories. So woman is actually the most shining forth of God's glory uh, on, on earth, right? Because she, so the glory of God is magnified in the creation of man. And then woman with the man in a marriage that shines forth God's glory even more, which goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, uh, where we talked about that stuff is good, creation is good, stars are good, land is good. Man alone is not good. Man with woman is very good, right? So whenever someone tells you that the Bible you know, is patriarchal or whatever, first of all, Tom, well, well, it is, because patriarchy is just the order of a marriage that the, I mean, that just means that the the man is the head. That's all that the word patriarchy means. So that's fine. But if they mean patriarchal and that it devalues women, you can tell them that's completely wrong, right? This is actually valuing women. Men are to honor their, uh, Proverbs 12 says that men are to honor their woman as their crown, right? They're, they are to honor their wife, a good virtuous wife, as their crown possession. And um, that, I think, hopefully helps clear up some of this value nonsense that, for some reason, uh, people say that women are not valued under a traditional biblical worldview. And uh, that's just simply not, not true. Women are valued because they magnify the glory of God's creation. And uh, they help the man in his God-given mission, and they uh, do incredibly important tasks and benefit uh, 
all of this blessing and benefit that we've talked about, all of that is dependent on the man and the woman together in this this relationship, right? So uh, anyhow, I think I think this is uh, this is good, and you can also think about like when it comes to submission, right? That when Jesus talks about the the order of things, right? Humility is always valued. So it is true that in the in the biblical worldview, I think of man and woman and of marriage, uh, the woman is the more humble, right? Paul Paul calls uh, the woman the weaker vessel. But remember also what Jesus says about humility and about uh, submission is that those who are first will be last and the last will be first, right? Um, the humble will be exalted and the pride will be cast down. So uh, for any kind of submission, whether that is the man to Christ or the woman to the man, that submission is not to be understood as a uh, negative thing that is bad in the sight of God, right? That somehow you have, and that, I mean, this really gets to justification that uh, people believe, and I think this is part of the drive of, of feminists and feminism, is that people always believe that they have to earn their way into heaven, right? They have to believe that, they believe that they have to do it themselves if they don't have the true gospel, if they don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to fully submit yourself to God's word, which to be a woman means also to submit yourself to your husband, uh, that is an act of saying that I'm not alone in this, right? That um, I depend on, well, first of all, on the blood of Jesus Christ for the, the salvation of sins, um, but I'm also not in a position to work myself out of anything, Right, I am. I am to. I'm called to submit. So women are called to submit to their husbands. Men are called to submit to the will of Christ. And then that's all. You can also see how that can be. That all works in the order and duty. So, um, let, let's actually just transition then to the duties of a marriage. So, how does this actually practically play itself out in a marriage? So. In a marriage, when the, the husband is the head of the household and this uh, ordering is going on, the thing that the man is called to do is to, to lead. And to lead, he gladly takes up his sacrificial responsibilities. This is something we've talked about a lot in the men's group, is that uh, to be a head, to be a leader in your to be a man in your house is, I'll just write this down, uh, to, to gladly take up sacrificial responsibilities. And if you look in Genesis 1 and 2, there are a lot of responsibilities that God gives to man. Uh, and the men's group and I have dissected this a lot. But I'll just um, let me just summarize it with uh, three three words, a little alliteration to help uh, the sacrif- the sacrificial responsibilities that men are to take up 
is to uh, provide, uh, protect, and let's just say preside over their their families and over their wives. Uh, that that men are called. So if you look at masculinity, biblical masculinity, anytime the Bible talks about men and masculinity, it always has to do with something that they're given a task, a responsibility that they're given to accomplish. And they're sacrificial because the tasks are always not for the sake of the man, right? That's the other, that's the other thing about the whole feminism, patriarchy thing is that the feminists always want to accuse the you know, conservative Christians as of the men being somehow selfish. And I always make the point, well, it's actually in feminism that the men benefit the most, right? In feminism, uh, what do men get to have? They get to have loose women, right? They get to not have to care for their uh, the children that they create because they can either just have them aborted or they can have their um, you know partner or whatever on on birth control and they don't even have to be married. Right, the the men get the most uh, worldly benefit. I would say I don't think it's real benefit, right? But men get the most fleshly pleasure out of feminism, because in feminism, uh, the man doesn't have to go out and work for a family, right? Um, the the man uh, gets to just work for himself and then gets sexual pleasure without having any kind of contractor covenant to um, have to keep him there to protect and provide, right? So men are most selfish in feminism. And I think feminism was created by men as a way uh, to get free and cheap sex, basically. Um, I think that uh, what's a lot harder for men is what I would call a biblical patriarchy, where men are actually required to take up this is this is a great it's right here I got it um, this is this is great man that could not have happened at a better time so so for those listening on the podcast we had a young woman here that was attacked by a wasp and a brave man stepped up and used took up his sacrificial responsibility and protected protected the women in the room. What a what a wonderful real life example. So anyway, feminism feminism is a whole scam artist thing made by men for free sex. Uh, but and this yeah totally. Um, so. Um, in a biblical patriarchy, men actually have to covenant themselves to, them wa- to their wives and swear to provide and protect and uh, preside, take responsibility for them, right? So a uh, totally different thing, and it doesn't actually worldly benefit men. I mean, I think, I think it does spiritually and, and in reality actually benefit men to step up in this way. Uh, but this is what the, the masculinity is. Um, what else was I going to say about that? Oh, on that note, this is hilarious. So all these feminists are coming out on the internet now. Uh, 
and after the Dobbs v. Jackson stuff. And they're, they're saying, we're not going to give men any more free sex. We are, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make up a law-abiding contract that if men want to have sex with us, they're going to have to sign it that they, if we have a child and we're not able to get an abortion, then th- that man is going to have to stay around and help provide for that child. And I'm like, yeah, sounds great. <laughs> like, that's what we've wanted from the beginning. It sounds like marriage. <laughs> but they don't get it. Like they, they, they think that they're like really sticking it to men. And it's like, yeah, no, this is, uh, this is great. Yeah. Also, by the way, here's a church. You know what? The church really promotes this idea. Um, it's hilarious, but yeah, they, they really don't, they, it's like, um, anyway. Well, today, today on the news, mm-hmm. they were showing this, um, uh, gynecologist somewhere and she was talking about how she'd had to add extra people in hours because now all these women are rushing to their gynecologist to get birth control. Uh-huh. I thought, why weren't they doing that before exactly. if they didn't want to have any kids? I mean, it was kind of like... Yeah, it's a crazy it world. Kinda like, what have they been doing? They wanted, to, they wanted abortions, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. But that's anyway. So crazy. Anyway. Um, all right. So, uh, so men are given the sacrificial responsibility to preside, protect, provide, protect, and preside. And Ephesians 5, uh, this is all aimed towards Christ, right? So as... Uh, as Christ loved the church. And that Christ is the picture of masculinity in the Bible, right? He's the one who takes up the ultimate sacrificial responsibility of sacrificing himself on the cross for the sake of the whole world. Uh, he's more masculine than any, than any man has ever been. And because the man is commanded to do this like Christ, then, especially in a Christian marriage, right, my question for for women is why wouldn't you want to line yourself up behind this, right? So women are called to submit to this kind of guy, right? And uh, submission then, you can see, which is treated as this like bad word sometimes in our day and age, submission is not a bad word, right? And again, this goes back to the very basic point that employees submit to their employers and soldiers submit to their commanders and all, all this. But especially if you have say you're an employee and you have a good boss right if you know what it's like to have a like a good boss who like cares about you who understands like your life situation and who uh you know wants to help you wants to teach you right or if you if you if you're like an athlete and you have a good coach who like helps you learn and knows when to discipline you and how to discipline you that's all that's all a blessing right and so uh, Christian wives, I think, tr- like true Christian wives that I've known, have ev- I've never really had a problem submitting to their husband, right? And then, of course, you know, the, the way that the world attacks, like Ephesians 5 and the whole idea of submission is, oh, well, you're, you're saying that men have the right to, uh, you know, beat up their wives and to, you know, yell at them and emotionally abuse them and all this stuff. And it's like, are you silly? Like, when in the history of the church has the church ever been okay with men treating women like that? Like, please give me historical examples of where true Christian men have thought it was okay to beat their wives, 
right? Does Christ think it's okay to beat his church? Of course not, right? And he doesn't. And, uh, I mean, Paul even gives the direct, uh, where is this? Uh, might be in Colossians somewhere? I, I'm trying to remember. Where Paul, Paul specifically says at one point, um, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, right? Uh, and, like, that, 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 that's equally a command for how husbands are to lead. Like, it's whenever Ephesians 5 is talked about, um, p- the world zooms in on the one word submission and completely forgets the surrounding context, which is that this has to be like Christ and like the church um, and what all that entails as far as love and nurture and uh, who has has what responsibilities and all these kinds of things. So um, anyhow, that's uh, that, that's order and duty. Um, practically, I, so I, I think a lot of times this gets talked about and then we leave out the practical side, which is, okay, what does this actually look like on a day-to-day basis? And there's a number of things to say about that. I, I think one is simply that when it comes to decisions in the household, first of all, uh, in creation, in God's creation, Paul even talks this way when he calls the women the weaker vessel, right? It's built into creation that men and women are different from one another. Uh, They're different in their bodies and they're different in their minds. Um, And I would say they're even different in their spirits in some regard. And... uh, so, so what well, well, I was gonna the the practical thing I was about to say is that when it comes to major decisions or even smaller decisions in the house, um, I think it's good if the husband takes the lead and makes decisions uh, for what is going to happen um, with their house. Now, there's obviously some leeway in this. Um, if so, say so, say the you're gonna go out to dinner and um, the husband says. We're going to go to Cracker Barrel. Okay, he's making a decisive decision. And someone says, fried okra sounds like it's going to make me throw up. Right. Uh, then the, so do I. I'm growing some. It's, it's good. I ate it raw. Like, I'll just cut it off the plant. I mean, that's good. Um, anyhow, beside the point. Uh, a loving husband will then say to his wife, like, Oh, like I want to protect you from that nausea, and so I'll choose another place, right? But um, that's all I ever try to do is protect you. That's right. You do a good job, right? Now, now in creation, now so that like uh, that that's kind of a small thing. Um, what I have found is that most of the time in marriages, and especially in troubled marriages. What has happened is that uh, women start to make more of the decisions, and they, even though the man thinks, oh, this is fine, I can sit back and she'll be happy because she's saying what she wants, and um, I really don't care because, like, the, the truth is men don't care where they eat. You know, they can eat fried okra or they can eat pizza, and it's, you know, half dozen one way, six the other. It's all good. Um, no Japanese. Well, yeah, sometimes there's a, there's a certain... A certain thing, right? Um, women will tend to start to resent not having to make the decision all the time, right? Because in nature, 
what do women want, right? What are women attracted to? They're attracted to a strong man who's able to protect and provide for them and make decisions when they need to be made. And so even if it's small things, those small things can add up and women can start to resent having to take care of things that, that men should take care of sometimes. So um, that, that's one thing um, that can happen practically. And so I'm giving, first of all, let me, let me say this. I'm giving a broad 10,000-foot uh, oh, view here. There, there may be exceptions to certain things uh, in things that I'm saying. But I would remind you, first of all, uh, that we shouldn't do theology by, by exception, right? Because, of, of course, there are always exceptions to things, but there are generalities that I think are worth noting and, and looking for in our lives. Um, and obviously, you want to go with what's generally true, not try and live life based on being an exception to things. Second of all, uh, just again, recall in mind what I've said before, which is that whenever we approach things that our culture says something very different on, we need to be willing to say, okay, what does God's word say? Um, what and, and what are the natural implications of that? And let's submit ourselves to that, even if it means recognizing that you know things in our life might need to change or if recognizing that we might not have done things the right way in the past um, or if a lot of people we know are going to disagree with this or whatever whatever discomfort a biblical doctrine may bring us if we can say you know what god's word is god's word and even if it's uncomfortable we're gonna deal with it and then of course there's repentance and forgiveness and 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 then also we can talk about okay is there an exception in this case what's making you uncomfortable this kind of thing right um, so keep those things in mind so I'm gonna say some things that are pretty countercultural here but another practical issue that I've that I've seen where marriages can go wrong is um, when the man is not the breadwinner when the man does not make more or has throughout their marriage provided more than the woman um, and that is because man is given to provide and a woman is given to help him in, in that task, uh, but she's given to submit to him under that task. And so I've seen marriages fall apart where the woman resents that she is the one bringing home the money and he's spending it or what, whatever, uh, or that, you know, he, that she's having to do all this work and he's not, he's not doing he's not stepping up and being a man about things um or and then also that the man uh is ashamed and therefore uh acts poorly in the marriage because he naturally feels as though he is the one who should be accomplishing this and i think those natural instincts that men and women have are built into creation and um so these are when when a marriage is being built, let's say, uh, from the ground up. These are things we want to think about, right? And obviously, and again, you know, there there could be exceptions to that, um, and there can be times where things might be different in a in the life of a marriage, depending on circumstances. But um, throughout cultures, throughout histories, and I think 
very much in line with the scriptural narrative of marriage is that it works best when this headship and submission is played out with the man being the main provider and the woman uh, submitting under that and helping as as he delegates. Um, other practical things, uh, I mean, along with that, I think that when you look historically, and this is very much not where we are now in, in history, but really uh, you had this idea of the, the, the sphere of the woman's work being the home and the man's work being outside the home. And now notice I say that they're both working, right? Women are meant to work. Women, uh, I'm not saying that women should not work. Um, that they should just be kind of like this kind of 1950s, uh, you know, TV show of the woman just kind of stands around in the kitchen not doing anything, looking pretty all day, right? I, right. Uh, um, that that both man and woman are given to work, right? They're both given work to do in the garden, and the man is the one who's given the task. The woman who's give, is given to help him in that task. So they're both given to work. And I've made this point uh, before when I think we talked about, in Sunday morning Bible study, we talked about uh, Ruth and um, how she needed a redeemer for, anyway, that's beside the point. But the point is that throughout history, the, so the word economy comes from the Greek word oikos, which means home. And you have this economy of the home where the work that is done for a society is centered around home. And when, whenever uh, throughout history and Christians have always you know, generally said that women should work inside the home and men should work outside the home, most of the time what that's meant is literally that the man does the outside work. Like he's the one in the field. He's the one in the shop. He's the one... Uh, doing the physical task, uh, whatever it may be, um, going outside the home to, to, to go out and then to bring back in, providing uh, for his family. The woman uh, takes it, does her work inside the home. So the man might be out in the field. The woman is working inside the home. And before we had dishwashers and before we had See, this all made a lot more sense before we had all these time-saving devices because uh, before you had dishwashers and washing machines and um, you could just go to any convenience store, there's probably 12 of them between your house and wherever you work, and pick up any number of things ready to eat, ready to, you know, ready to wear, whatever it was, um, before all of that convenience culture that we have now after the Industrial Revolution, there was a lot of work to be done in the home, right? There was a lot of uh, work that was not necessarily easy work either, right? Um, you know, to, to make food was an all-day, to make dinner was an all-day task, right? Uh, to make a simple dinner was an all-day task, right? You had to, if you wanted to make bread, you had to, you didn't just have to, you know, mix it up and put it in the oven. Uh, you had to grind down the flour, right? You had to do all these things. 
Uh, if you wanted to wash clothes, that wasn't just, you know, throw a batch in there and then walk away. Um, you know, there was, you had to wash each, each thing on some kind of washing board or something, right? So um, the, the sphere of work um, outside the home and inside the home, that naturally does make sense. And I would actually point out to First uh, Timothy uh, 5.14 that sometimes people so will ask, well, is there really a, does the Bible really say that it's ideal that women work in the home? And I'd say, actually, yeah, it does. Um, and it, it was so implicit, I think, in the culture at the time that the Bible doesn't address it too much. But um, Paul does give this advice to Timothy that when he's taking care of his congregation, uh, that the younger, um, if there's widows in the congregation, so if a, a young woman is widowed, if it's an older woman, then she should help teach the younger woman women things uh, and so on and so forth. If it's a younger widow, then uh, this is 1 Timothy 5.14, therefore I want younger widows to marry, to have children, to keep house, and to give no opportunity for the enemy to slander them. Right? So this, you can see there what Paul thinks the sphere of the work that a woman is given to do as she's delegated to do under her husband's authority is uh, in a, a Christian home, right? Marriage, children, to keep the home, be a homemaker, right? And uh, to um, not, and that, and that gives no opportunity for the enemy to slander, right? That is a way uh, to put the woman in the place that she's going to be most uh spiritually healthy and um i've also talked about i I talked about this a little bit last week that um you know when timothy when when paul writes uh that to timothy that the woman is saved through childbearing that there's actually a blessing in being a mom and being a uh christian wife that puts you in a place where you are where, where, where women are sanctified. Um, and that's part of the sanctification of marriage that we talked about under that blessing section. So anyway, um, I, I think that's enough of that. Uh, there are, so there are practical implications to this, which our culture is obviously very far from. And, and I understand too, like the, so just thinking about the, the working inside and outside the home, um, it's darn near impossible not to have a dual income household nowadays. Right. I mean, the, it's it's very difficult um, in in this economy. So, like I said, it's not that there are, there are not exceptions to this, but we're talking about kind of what the Christian ideal is. Um, anyway, I'm going to stop going on about this because we're going to watch a documentary on feminism and on it's actually not just about feminism. It's partly about the history of feminism. But then the other part is, okay, what do we do about it? How should women live, right, in our society? Because we're at this place in society where, um, right, if you saw that Kentonji Brown-Jackson clip a couple months, probably a month or a couple weeks ago, probably over a month ago now, where she's, she was asked, what is a woman, 
and she couldn't even give a definition. Right? This is our Supreme, newest Supreme Court justice. Uh, can't give a de- definition for the word woman. Right? We're at a place in our society where we don't even know what men and women are anymore. Right? And so this is a big question is how are we to live as men and women? And uh, this is, so this is a big deal. So anyway, there's a documentary we're going to watch. It's called Even Exile. And uh, we'll get to it eventually once we finish all this other stuff. So uh, that's any questions on order and duty? Yeah. Um, I mean, cultural changes definitely affect how people think about these things. And like, again, my, my argument is just that we need to not be so quick to be affected by culture and use that as a way to say that, well, it's just not the way things are anymore, right? What we should do as Christians is always take a step back look at what the scripture says, and then try and conform our lives to that. And uh, that, that might mean changing things about our lives, right? So, um, that, I mean, to, to take kind of like the emotion and that is involved with marriage out of it, you can, you can kind of think about, and, and there's other aspects of this, other, or other, other situations with this too that... Um, we get, you know, the church will end up with blind spots over time as if it lets itself be dictated by culture and kind of gets relaxed on something and just doesn't think about something scripturally. And the, so the church will end up with blind spots. That, that's a pretty natural human thing to happen. Uh, the analogy I was going to give is that it's, it's very culturally normal for people to live with a lot of debt nowadays, right, to have you know, really massive, especially with student loans and stuff, to have massive amounts of debt that they just kind of live under every day. You know, they, they owe money on their car, they owe money on their house, they owe money on their student loans. And not to mention, they also, you know, that stuff's kind of normal. But then nowadays, people owe a lot of money on their TV and on their phone and, you know, on everything. Everything's financialized. And um, a lot of people, I think, live and don't even think about that as like, in a potential problem. Now, it could be a potential problem, right? Uh, there's a lot of things that can go wrong with having owing a lot of debt. And uh, it's so sometimes people like live like that and then something will go wrong. And then all of a sudden they realize like, I've been thinking about this all wrong. Like this is not normal. And then they'll do Dave Ramsey or something and, and make big life changes and get out of it. And that's not easy, right? But it is what's, what's actually harder in the long run is to go against your conscience, right? What's harder in the long run is to do the, to, to do the wrong thing. It is difficult to change your ways, right? Uh, and to go to to you know, make the budget cuts and to live off rice and beans and to uh, pay off debt, right? That's difficult, but it's fulfilling, right? It's rewarding. And 
it's rewarding and fulfilling because you know it's the right thing and your conscience is clear. So that's kind of the what I'm saying about anything with this marriage stuff is like I and I honestly don't know where everyone's at with everything in the congregation. I don't know who's watching this. Um, I don't know where all of y'all sitting here are at personally with the things I'm saying, but um, I know what I see Scripture saying, and I know our culture looks very different from it. And uh, there are things that I know that previous generations of pastors, not necessarily in this congregation, but um, in the in the church at large, have neglected to talk about because it was a blind spot. And now uh, we're at this place in our culture where these things are coming to a head because now now it's not just you know 1920s feminism. Now it's LGBTQ plus 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 plus, right? And my generation is having to say, okay, what is man? What is woman? What is marriage? What are children? And uh, what is all of that according to God's divine word? And so that is, um, anyway, sorry, that's kind of an excursus, but uh, the, these things are, are difficult to talk about because I know that, that there is, there are going to be people uh, who could be rubbed the wrong way by things that I say. And of course, I don't want to offend the flock, but I also have to be honest with God's word, right? So um, anyway, yeah, but but all that is to say, yes, a lot of cultural things change people's perception of this. Men working from, from home changes people's cultural perception of this. Uh, and working from home is a kind of an interesting thing too, but um, now with technology as well, but, uh, anyhow, yeah, let's, so any other questions on order and duty? Okay. Uh, so let's move on to procreation. So again, our kind of overall topic here is what God intends for marriage. Keep me honest in time too. I'm not wearing a watch. Oh, I got four minutes. Okay. Um, what God intends for marriage. One of the things he intends for marriage and I, I don't think this should be very controversial, but is procreation, uh, is the the procreation of children. Now, what does get controversial is uh, how we should go about that and what is allowed in the prevention and, and so on and so forth of that, which we'll, we'll kind of get to in here in a moment. But, but first of all, let's just start with the basics of the Bible, is that in Genesis 1, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That is not... That, that command is given before the fall into sin. That's not uh, part of the ceremonial law. That's not part of the ritual law of the Old Testament. Um, that is never done away with in the New Testament, right? That is a divine command that remains for Christians in the New Testament, uh, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And uh, I've before I've talked about... Um, that you can even dissect that further, that be fruitful. Uh, when the Bible talks about fruit, it's talking about sanctification, so grow in God's holiness. Uh, and that, you know, John 15, what is fruit, right? Or Galatians, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, um, that we should grow in fruitfulness uh, spiritually. Um, 
be fruitful, multiply, uh, that is talking about, I don't think there's really any other way to say it than talking about procreation, uh, to, to multiply of yourselves that Adam, Adam and Eve would multiply. Um, and then fill the earth uh, is, that is a, I, you know, I've kind of said that men are given this mission by God, right? And the help that the woman gives to the man is for the sake of the mission. Well, part of the, 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 the fill the earth and subdue the earth, these are the missions of man, right? Uh, to, and I, I, I think this is, you know, I think about like church planting and stuff, right? We want to go out, find, uh, and we want to do the Great Commission, right? We want to go to all nations, find all the people we can, uh, to, to believe in the gospel. Well, the same thing is true just with God's creation. Man is the crown of creation, right? Man and woman makes creation very good. So God wants to fill up his earth with man and woman. He wants to fill up his earth with families. He wants to fill up his earth with what he loves, which is humans, right? He loves humans, so he wants to fill that earth up. And so the mission that Adam and Eve are given is to go out and to fill up the earth and to subdue it. And that's why he makes them garden right, um, is that we are to put this earth under our control and take care of it, right? We, no, it's supposed to be done under marriage and not and go out and have a... Right, yeah, so we'll get to conjugal... I, I want to talk about that in the next section, conjugal love and devotion, about, yeah, so procreation, which involves conjugal love, obviously. Um, hopefully we don't have to talk about how that works. Uh <laughs> That that is given to be done within within the marital bounds. Um, so so this is given to Adam and Eve as the marriage couple, um, right? So so anyway, you can split up this, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Uh, but within that is still involved this procreation, right? That part of filling the earth and definitely multiplying is uh, the act of having children. So this is given within the moral law, and if you think about the one flesh union, what is the fruit of the one flesh union, right? Well, first of all, how do man and woman become one flesh? How is the marriage consummated, right? It's through the, the act of conjugal love. And what is the fruit of that naturally? It is that children would be born from that. And so uh, procreation is part of God's intention for marriage. Um, there's no real getting around that biblically, okay? Now, uh, let's see. What else do I want right here? Um, so it's commanded in the moral law. The, the other thing to note is that it's very consistent with the rest of Genesis 1. So if you look at Genesis 1, certain things in creation are given fertility. So... Uh, that, and the way this is talked about is about uh, the phrase according to their kinds. So the first couple things in, in Genesis 1 are not given fertility. The heavens and earth don't recreate themselves, right? The heavens and earth don't reproduce themselves. Uh, the waters don't reproduce themselves. However, vegetation has fertility, right? Vegetation... Uh, produces seed and bears fruit according to its kind, right? So apple trees make apples. There's seeds in the apples. Those seeds 
make more apple trees, uh, right? They, they're, they're done according to their kind. Uh, the living creatures, they reproduce according to their kinds, right? So you have a man and woman bird, man and woman bird get together, they have baby birds, right? They reproduce according to their kinds. Uh, the same thing is true for man. Man is given to reproduce according to um, their kind. And notice what their, their kind is, and this is why God loves humans so much, is because God makes man and woman from his image, right? So man, man comes from the image of God, and therefore when man and woman get together and reproduce according to their kind, what are they doing? They're making more of God's creatures, God's beloved creatures, God creatures, creatures with souls, right? So humans are the only creatures with souls, and uh, man and woman are the only creatures with souls, and they reproduce according to their kind, uh, bringing more, more humans. So they are given uh, fertility. And uh, that fertility is a blessing, right? If you read Psalm 127 and 128, you see that the fertility that man and woman are given, um, children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. When his enemy comes in his gate, uh, they will not be able to speak against him. Children are a blessing from the Lord because it is the fruit of the blessed marriage that God has given them. Now, and, and so what we have here is we have a command, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And we have a blessing. Children are a blessing. That command and that blessing are not distinct from one another, right? Oftentimes, I think what we want to say is, oh, well, uh, there's the command, which I... Uh, may or may not have to follow, and then the blessing I kind of get to choose whether I want it or not, um, or command, oh, that sounds like legalistic, and then um, the blessing is, you know, however I want it, and kind of separate those things out to where um, it, we can make it up to us how God is going to bless us. And I think what's much more helpful is to say, no, the command and blessing go together. You follow God's commands, and he will bless you as he sees fit. Um, and that as he sees fit is important. So, again, fertility is given by God for certain creatures and not for others. And that even applies within humans. Not every human couple, not every mar marital couple is able to have as many children as every other couple. right? But it's up to God. Right? It's up to God to decide how many um, and how often that is going to happen in a marriage because God's the God of fertility, not us. Okay, So that obviously brings up the question of birth control. And uh, now I think is a great time for me to say that I'm out of time to talk. Um, and we can pick that up next week. But before we talk about birth control, you don't have to do this. But... If you want to, um, there was a paper given by a good friend of mine, the guy who ordained me, uh, Pastor Kuntz, who is in Colorado now. Uh, there is a paper that he gave at the seminary in January on the topic of 
a biblical theology of human fertility is what it's called. Um, basically talking about procreation and birth control and all of that. And it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's, uh, I mean, it's an academic paper, so it's a, it can be a, a little dense at times, but he's a really good speaker, and it's, I don't think it, for any of, anyone here it's uh, too dense by any means. Um, you're all really smart. So uh, the place you can find it is on YouTube. Um, I, I gave it to the men's group, so I made a tiny URL for it. So if you go to tinyurl. Let me make sure I have this right. tinyurl.com slash Kuntz, K-O-O-N-T-Z, yeah, dash fertility. Uh, it's about an hour long. Fertility. Yeah. Um, then that should pull up the YouTube video for you. Or you can just go to YouTube and type in Kuntz Fertility, and you should find it. Um, but if you watch that, that'll give you a really good overview of the kinds of things I'm going to say about uh, more about procreation and, and, uh, and birth control and such. Uh and kind of where the church is on on those things, um, because this is something that the church, this is one of those blind spots that the church has not discussed this topic for about 50 years, um, really since birth control became really popular, and maybe it's something we should have been talking about when you look at what the Bible says about fertility. So um, anyway, you can watch that video and. Um, it's, it's a really good video, the way he presents it, I think. So uh, I'll leave you with that. Any final questions, comments, concerns? All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your holy word. We pray that you would help us daily to conform our lives more and more to it. And if we see places where our lives have not been conformed to your word, that we pray that you would give us repentance and the forgiveness of sins, for you have... Uh, promised us to be gracious to us, that you would have favor on us, even when we err. And uh, we pray that you would keep your promise, keep your promises, and we pray that you would help us uh, to learn more and more of the knowledge of Jesus Christ uh, so that we may have clear consciences and that we may live our lives uh, wholly according uh, to your word for your service out of love for you and and love for one another. We pray all this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.